Chapter 13 of Tales of the Royal Irish Constabulary by Unknown. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13 Seal Island. Sergeant O'Brien was as fine a type of the R.I.C. as you would meet in half a dozen baronies, of magnificent physique, great courage, full of tact, and with the perfect manners of a true Irishman. At the end of 1918, O'Brien found himself sergeant in charge of Clole Barracks, a comfortable thatched house close to the shores of Loch Moira, and distant about four miles from Ballybor. While at Clolay, his principal work consisted of trying to put down the making of poteen, which was carried on extensively by the inhabitants of two small islands in the south end of the lake. Otherwise, the sergeant was on the best of terms with all the people of the district, who often appealed to him for advice and help, and, as O'Brien was a keen fisherman, he often managed to combine business with sport while out in the police boat soon after blake became d i at ballybor orders were received from the county inspector to evacuate clolie barracks and for o'brien and his men to proceed to ballybor barracks as the country round clolie had as yet shown no hostility towards the police and as it was hard to get a house in any town o'brien asked and obtained leave for his young wife and family to remain on at clolie barracks and here not long after the sergeant had gone the youngest o'brien was born Two days afterwards, on a wet winter's evening, there came a knock at the barracks door, and when Mrs. O'Brien asked who was there, a man's voice bade her open in the name of the IRA. Obeying, she found two masked men who covered her with revolvers, and told her they would give her five minutes to clear out of the barracks before they set it on fire. Mrs. O'Brien had seven children, the eldest about ten years, and the youngest two days old, most of whom were in bed by this time as fast as she could she roused and dressed the children but the five minutes soon passed and the men entered and bundled the whole family some of the children only half clothed out into the wet and cold of a winter's night outside mrs o'brien found a large party of ballybor shop boys some of them wearing black masks led by four strange gunmen this party had arrived at Clolay about an hour before, and had at once proceeded to picket all roads leading to and from the barracks, and every unfortunate countryman or woman they met making their way along the roads was at once seized by the pickets, taken to the barrack-yard, and there placed faced inwards against the wall, with their hands on top of their heads. As soon as the O'Brien family had been hustled into the road, the gunman threw paraffin and petrol on the thatch of the barracks, set it alight, and in a very short time the building was a charred ruin. They then mounted their bicycles and rode off into the night, leaving the unfortunate O'Briens to shift for themselves. Leaving her family huddled under a hedge, the mother tried to get into two neighboring houses, but the blighting curse of the IRA was on her and hers, and not a house would even open its door, let alone take them in. In the end she saw that it was hopeless, and returning to her children, did her best to keep them warm with her own body and the few blankets she had managed to bring out of the barracks, and here they spent the night like the beasts of the field next morning some countrymen braver than the rest brought word to the ballybor barracks of the burning at clolay and sergeant o'brien arrived on the scene to find his wife and family perished and starving such is the mercy of the ira for the little children of the irc o'brien took his family back to ballybor barracks where they were fed and warmed 
but in ireland nowadays a police barracks is no place for little children and women and before night they must leave in vain the sergeant tried to find lodgings he might as well have tried to swim the atlantic every door was slammed in his face directly he made his appeal but the good samaritan is not yet extinct in ireland and at last the sergeant found a refuge for his family in the empty gardener's lodge of ballybore house while being turned out of clowley barracks mrs o'brien had recognized two of the incendiaries who had taken their masks off as two prominent Sinn fein shop boys of ballybore afterwards telling her husband their names martin walsh and peter lynch and the sergeant never forgot them on a glorious june day blake was leaning over the parapet of the lower bridge crossing the owenmore river in ballybore watching the fishermen hauling in a net full of silvery grills and wishing that he could accept an invitation to fish at ardcumber after a time his eye wandered to a fleet of boats below the bridge some anchored while others were attached to mooring buoys from force of habit he started to count them and on finding that there were no less than thirty-seven he began to make out their total carrying capacity which roughly came to the high figure of three hundred on the following sunday he happened to be crossing the same bridge at about ten in the morning and stopped to look at three boats packed with young men a few carrying fishing rods starting off down the river the fishing rods were there right enough but something seemed wrong the men looked too purposeful and moreover eight or nine young men in a boat with a couple of rods is an unusual sight blake watched the boats disappearing fast down the river and wondered what would be the right word to substitute for fishing after a while he realized that there was not a boat left on the river and further that if all the boats had carried as many passengers as the three he had just seen start over three hundred young men from ballybor had gone a-fishing that sunday morning the majority of whom if not all of them were shop boys the most dangerous element in the town the barracks commanded a good view of the reach of the river where the boats were usually moored and next sunday at an early hour blake told off sergeant o'brien with a pair of field glasses to report how many boats and how many men went out a-fishing at eleven o'clock the sergeant reported that as usual all the thirty-seven boats had started carrying two hundred and fifty young men and that among them he had recognized most of the prominent Sinn fein shop boys of the town but he did not add that he had seen walsh and lynch five miles below ballybore the owenmore river from being roughly two hundred yards wide suddenly becomes an inland sea with a width of over three miles and a length of a mile between this inland water and the open sea runs a long narrow range of sand hills commonly known as seal island nearly three miles long and with an average width of four hundred yards blake came to the conclusion that the fishing expeditions every sunday must be connected with this lonely island but except for drilling and sand dunes did not seem a suitable place for a parade he could think of nothing to which this island would lend itself moreover he knew that if he tried to find out what was going on by observing from the mainland he would be spotted and the alarm given and that if he tried to approach the island in a boat from the seaside the fisherman from dunkara would give him away in the end it was settled to wait until the following sunday when sergeant o'brien made his way across country before daylight and hid himself in the tower of an old abbey on the shore of the island sea from which the greater part of seal island was visible 
On the Sunday night he returned to barracks and reported that the uh, fishermen had all landed at the little pier on the south side of the island, left a small guard over the boats, and made their way into the sand hills, where they were hidden from his view. Some time afterwards, muffled intermittent rifle fire started and continued at intervals for several hours, after which the uh, fishermen returned to their boats and rowed back leisurely to Ballybor on the flood tide. But before Blake could tackle the mystery of Seal Island, he had to turn his attention to a flying column of the IRA which was reported to be making its way towards Ballybor. On the Sunday evening when O'Brien returned from the old abbey, word was brought in by a loyalist that the flying column had been seen that day at the Ballyrick Mountains and had taken up its quarters in the empty house of Mr. Padraig O'Flaherty, member of Dial Ironing for the Ballybor country, who had been for some time past an unwilling guest of the British government somewhere in England. Padraig O'Flaherty's house was, advisedly was, situated in the middle of a desolate valley in the mountains twenty miles from Ballyrick and the same distance from Ballybor, and could only be approached by a bog road which winds through mountains and moors without passing a single human habitation for the last eight miles. Moreover, there was not a tree within fifteen miles of the house, so that any attempt at surprise or even attack during the daytime was out of the question. At the first sight of a Crosley, and they had a three-mile view of the road both ways from the house, the flying column would simply dissolve into the mountains, probably to reappear the next day, attacking a police barracks fifty miles the other side of Ballybor. A good example of the kind of problem the RIC has to solve daily in the wild parts of the West. That night Blake left Ballybor with an advanced guard of police on bicycles, and making a detour of the town, timed himself to arrive at O'Flaherty's house just before daylight, having arranged that Jones should follow in the Crosleys with his platoon of Blankshires and as many police as could be spared. Arriving too soon, they hid their bicycles in some high heather near the road, and as soon as it was light enough, took up positions at different points round the house, so that every avenue of escape would be swept by their rifle fire and waited for the main body to arrive. As the sky became light, smoke could be seen rising from some of the chimneys, a suspicious sign at that hour of the morning, and shortly afterwards four young men appeared at the door, yawning and stretching themselves. After examining the valley in every direction with field glasses, they proceeded to bring about forty bicycles out of a stable and park them in a military formation outside, after which they re-entered the house. During the next hour nothing happened, and just as Blake had given up all hope of the main body arriving and was thinking of trying to rush the house with his small force, a large party of men started to leave the house and make for the bicycles, and Blake was forced to give the order to open fire. Several men were seen to drop at once, while the rest rushed back into the house, carrying their wounded with them, and in a minute heavy fire was opened from every window in the house on the police positions, the firing of a single shot by a policeman being the signal for a hail of bullets in that direction. Blake was now getting very anxious at the non-arrival of Jones's party, fearing that instead of capturing the flying column, the volunteers might capture the police and, in order to deceive them, ordered his men to withhold their fire unless the volunteers tried to rush them. 
At last Jones turned up, having been delayed repeatedly by punctures and completed a strong cordon around the house. Blake now attempted to draw the cordon closer, but every time the police and soldiers tried to advance by short rushes under heavy covering fire, the volunteers opened such accurate fire from every window, including machine-gun fire from one of the upper rooms, that he had to desist. Eventually the soldiers silenced the machine-gun with their Lewis guns. After getting to within 300 yards of the house, Blake found that owing to the formation of the ground, it would be impossible to advance any nearer without heavy losses, and refused to allow Jones to make an assault with his men until all other means of reducing the place had failed. The day was now wearing on, and for several hours the situation had remained a complete deadlock. The volunteers were obviously marking time until darkness set in, when they would stand a good chance of slipping through the cordon, and Blake fully realized that if he did not win during daylight, he would surely lose in the dark. Blake and Jones lay in the heather close together, arguing as to whether they should try to assault the house or not. Jones was keen to try, while Blake feared a failure with heavy losses. The day was by now blazing hot, with a steady south wind, and Jones, after lighting a cigarette, carelessly threw the match away alight, and in a second the dry heather took fire, and was only extinguished with great difficulty. But the fire had given Blake the idea he had been hunting for so long. Collecting all the matches that the men possessed, Jones made his way round to the south side of the house, and distributed them amongst all the men there who at a given signal set fire to the heather in front of them, and as soon as the house was enveloped in a cloud of smoke, the whole force charged for the house. As soon as they got within range, the police hurled Mills bombs through every window, and the soldiers then dashed in with fixed bayonets, but the bombs had done the work. They found that the volunteers had suffered heavily, hardly a man escaping a bomb splinter or a Lewis gun bullet, and the question was how to remove so many wounded. In the house they found bed and bedding for fully forty men, and a great supply of fresh and tinned food. Also rifles, chiefly Mauser, American shotguns, automatics, revolvers, a quantity of ammunition, and a good stock of homemade bombs in a kind of cellar. Not having enough transport, Blake sent off a fast car to ask for help from the county inspector. Before leaving, Blake blew up Mr. Patrick O'Flaherty's house with the volunteers' bombs, and the party returned to Ballybor before dark, victorious but worn out. As soon as they had had some sleep, Blake and Jones started to work out their plans for a surprise attack on Seal Island the following Sunday, and found that they had a difficult task before them. Except at the east and west ends of the island, where the two channels of the river cut through the ridge of sand hills, all approaches were visible for a long distance, and any idea of surprise out of the question. On the other hand, if an attempt was made to cross the channels, the volunteers would have ample time to reach their boats at the pier in the middle of the south shore, and so escape, while at a low tide it was possible to walk across at one point to the mainland. In the end, they gave it up and went to consult the C.I., who decided to call in the assistance of the Navy. On Sunday morning, Sergeant O'Brien duly reported that the boats had gone down the river, as usual, with full crews. The previous night, a destroyer had crept into the bay with all lights covered, and after landing a large party of blue jackets on Seal Island, had left again. 
after allowing sufficient time for the volunteers to land and get to work blake followed in a commandeered motor launch and at the same time jones left the barracks with his platoon in two crosleys each with a lewis gun one party making for the western mouth of the river and the other for the eastern where they proceeded to take up positions covering all escape across the channels about three hundred yards from the pier on seal island blake and his men landed on a small round green island called gannet island and took up positions covering the boats lying alongside the pier directly they landed a small group of men were seen to leave the pier and disappear into the sand dunes meanwhile the launch with a machine gun mounted in the bows proceeded to patrol along the south shore of the island over the shallow water after a short time heavy firing broke out in the sand hills and then died down to break out again as a large body of volunteers streamed towards the pier but before they could reach their boats blake's men on gannet island opened fire on them and the launch sprayed them well with its machine-gun the volunteers seemed nonplussed and at a loss what to do but the blue jackets advancing in open order with fixed bayonets from the sand hills quickly decided them and they made for the east end of the island disappearing into a hollow followed by the blue jackets again heavy firing broke out from the direction of the hollow and continued at intervals for over an hour fearing that something was wrong blake then embarked his men on the launch and after landing at the pier proceeded in the direction of the firing to find the volunteers holding a large house which so far the sailors had failed to take the house came as a surprise to the police none of whom had ever set foot on the island before and there seemed every prospect of another deadlock the house was old well built and commanded a fine field of fire in every direction but sailors are handy men and after a consultation with blake the lieutenant in command decided to signal to his destroyer which had anchored in the bay again to open fire with her guns on the house after trying in vain to get a direct view of the house the destroyer opened indirect fire a sailor on a high sand hill signaling the result of each shot unfortunately the house was so sheltered by the sides of the hollow that nothing short of a howitzer could have reached it but the sailors were not beaten after putting farther out to sea the destroyer tried again and this time at the third shot got home with a direct hit and in a few minutes it was seen that the house was on fire sailors and police now held their fire and waited for the exciting moment when the volunteers would be forced by the flames to bolt a quarter of an hour half an hour passed but not a volunteer bolted from the now fiercely burning house at last the roof fell in with a crash and a shower of sparks and every man gripped his rifle thinking that at last the rebels would be smoked out but nothing happened they had either vanished into thin air or were roasted alive still the sailors and police waited on thinking that in the end somebody must come out without any warning one gable end of the house suddenly fell outwards and simultaneously firing broke out from the east channel of the river about five hundred yards away the spell was now broken and every man dashed in the direction of the firing when they reached high ground they could see many of the volunteers swimming across the channel while those who could not swim were running towards the north side of the island the half platoon of the blankshires with sergeant o'brien as a guide had taken up their position in the sand hills on the mainland commanding the passage across the east channel 
and had only been interested spectators of sorts of the battle up to the time the gable fell when to their astonishment they suddenly saw the volunteers streaming out of the sand hills and dashing into the river in front of them foremost among the swimmers sergeant o'brien saw to his great joy the heads of walsh and lynch their foot-long hair floating like manes behind them and knew that his enemies had been delivered into his hands by the time the swimmers reached the mainland and found themselves covered by the rifles and lewis gun of the soldiers they had had enough and put up their hands of their own accord the sailors and police now beat the island towards the west end and after a hard scramble over the sand hills captured the remaining volunteers a careful search of the place where the volunteers had suddenly appeared out of the ground showed that there was an underground passage running from the house to within a short distance of the shore probably used in former days for smuggling purposes a further search explained the reason of the volunteers sunday visits to the island in a valley of the sand hills they found an up-to-date rifle range and afterwards learnt that it had been built during the early part of the war and frequently used for firing musketry courses by units of the new armies training in ireland End of chapter thirteen